Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security, Security Confidential. I'm your host, Manoj Tandon. And today we have a very special guest, Nat Shear. He joins us. Uh, Nat has a tremendous amount of experience in the cybersecurity industry. He is a cybersecurity consultant. He specializes in ethical hacking and secure coding. He has worked as a product security engineer, and he's worked extensively with developers to integrate security into the products that companies develop and, and put out to market. He has a master's in computer security and has taught undergraduate level courses in both mathematics and computer science. Welcome to the show, Nat. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Manoj. So, Nat, you know, um, we're... There, there's so much I want to ask you. I, I don't know if we'll get to everything, but uh, we would definitely want your insights. Uh, there's a host of topics that you're an expert in that we want to know. And, you know, one of the ones, let's let's kick it off with the motherhood and apple pie of cybersecurity penetration testing. I mean, I it is, uh, I can tell you uh, as a cybersecurity company, we get a lot of requests for it. It's it's mm-hmm. something that compliance requires uh, for a lot of organizations to do, at least on an annualized basis. But really, uh, in, in a lot of instances, we see companies are just checking the box. How could you go beyond just checking the box and actually make penetration testing help you to reduce your attack surface and reduce your overall risk profile in the organization. What are your thoughts? Give us some insights here. Yeah, sure. Right. Well, so I think the trend, when you're just checking the box, you, you hire your pen testers, you get your report, and that's it. You move on. If you even glance the executive summary on that report, you know, you feel like you've done a, you've gotten your value out of the engagement. But that's, of course, that's not enough. You know, that's just checking the box. and You're not really getting the full value there. I generally look at it from two perspectives. It's both during the engagement, getting the value of what's going on, of the active testing, but then also after the engagement of getting the full value from the report. Um, What I think is very often overlooked is during the engagement, that is active hacking traffic. You should be looking at your logs, you should be looking at your IDS or IPS alerts, you know, seeing what you're seeing. Um, Are your your security, if you have a security operations center, for example, are they seeing the traffic of the testing activity from your penetration testers? And then of course, following up with the report, you're able to then correlate that to what you saw. If for example, I report SQL injection and you go back to your SOC and say, did we see it? And they say, no, well, that's a huge gap in your security monitoring that you need to focus on besides just fixing the actual technical vulnerability of the SQL injection that was found. So that's... You know, uh, Nat, you bring up a couple really good points here. One thing that we see, though, is because of costs, and Mm -hmm. this is going to really probably apply more so to the small, medium businesses than the enterprise, but in in the SMB space, and there's a lot of regulatory requirements for them as well, whether you're a small bank, you're a small healthcare provider, a financial institution of some kind, even though you may be small, you still have all the regulatory overhead, but they have these cost constraints that really limit them to what they can do in the penetration testing. So like when you're talking about SQL injection, a lot of times people will skip that. They'll just give you a range of IPs 
that they want to have tested. And then they say, well, we've tested that and that's the beginning and end of it. They're skipping things like testing the applications for SQL injection, skipping social engineering there because those things take time. And, and that of course translates to cost. But what would you say to those folks who are uh, purposefully limiting the scope? So it really depends, I think, on who they are. I mean, sometimes it is just a, um, a cost restriction. You know, you're not always going to be able to do the full test. So then it will be a, you know, to make sure we're not just checking the box, right? This Certainly, if, if cost is a factor, then don't just check the box. That is the worst way to just throw money out, out the window, right? So we want to truly get value out of what we're doing. And... Um, so if you do need to limit scope, then you need to do a very good risk analysis of, you know, I have these five servers. These are my critical, critical assets because, for example, they have the financial data or, um, you know, my PII, those sorts of things, the you know, personally identifiable information that um, we need to focus on. So we really need to make sure that these are secure. I'm going to focus on these and get the full value out of my security testing and then hopefully down the line, I'll do more security testing or on the rest of my assets, or I'll put in other security controls, for example, um, around other assets that I don't quite have the budget for full testing on. So do you help clients walk through that risk analysis? Because I think people really struggle with that. I... Mm -hmm. It is something I try to very much. Yeah, especially when budget is a factor. You know, I say, again, I... I don't want to do penetration testing if it's going to be a check in the box. It's it's not valuable for me to, to go through all that work just to have the report sitting on a hard drive unread. And it's not worth it for the client to pay for that type of engagement. So, yeah, I definitely you know want to make sure that um, the engagement has value. And if that means limiting the scope, then it means limiting the scope to what's most valuable. Yeah, I, I think uh, is there do you have any guides or tips or something practical that our audience can go to on the web that says, look, if you want to do even the most basic of risk analyses, here, here's a spreadsheet or a website or a document or something that, that'll walk you through, at least ask these questions of yourselves before you really mm -hmm. plan an engagement for penetration testing. Um, there are lots of resources. We do have a couple articles on our um, you know, website blog, um, and I post a lot about it on LinkedIn as well. Um, but if there's something if there's something specific, I'm certainly happy to uh, uh, respond to questions. Yeah, I think on. it would be good if you, uh, you know, post this podcast, maybe uh, send uh, Emily and I some of the uh, links and we'll include them in the show notes. Right. So that. Yeah, absolutely. So that people can go and read that, because I think there's a lot of. Um, there's a lot of flying by the seat of your pants, at least what we have mm -hmm. seen. I, I don't have uh, official stats on it, but anecdotally, it it, <laughs> it really appears that that there's a lot of it going on. There's some people that have mm -hmm. uh, done a tremendous amount of due diligence on their risk analysis and are very cognizant of what are critical assets in play. And there's others right. where maybe that's not so much the case. Um, and what you're describing is is absolutely correct. Have you seen like is, is SQL injection have app developers not 
really close those gaps? I mean, you would think by now that that's a attack surface that's been known for a long time, right? It absolutely has. And you would think it, it would go away. Um, it certainly has gotten better. I will say that, but it's, I, I do still find SQL injection pretty often. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, Google this thing when you get a chance, there's a, in, in the UK, there was a guy on who on his uh, bumper put an entire SQL injection query on the bumper of his car. And it actually injected into the traffic cam network. It worked. I can't remember what it all did, but I thought that talk about creativity. That's highly. That, that is, I've seen, I think I've seen a picture of the, of the, you know, license plate, but I, I'll have to go back and look at the full article to see what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I wonder if they actually even noticed it or was that him later on saying, Hey guys, by the way, <laughs> It's an, that must be an impressive bit of code too to fit on the back oh, of the car. Oh, it's, it's like a that. it's a long piece. If it ran all the way across the bumper, <laughs> Emily, if you if you by chance find that, put that in the uh, t- put a picture of that in the. <laughs> we got a c- camera on YouTube, by the way. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, th- we actually th- that was interesting that that happened when. Just switching uh, gears here a little bit, uh, since we jumped to app development, how, and we're talking, you know, one of the things we wanted to discuss with you was third-party risk. And so let's Mm -hmm. first define what what would you characterize as being third-party risks? What, What would be a good definition of it? It's a good question. It can be very tough uh, to, to, to nail that down, but generally you're looking at anything you don't have direct control over. Perfect. So, right, your, your supply chain, um, third-party software, third-party vendors, um, contractors who are coming in, even a penetration tester um, is technically, because he's going he's gonna to have your scope um, list. He's going to know your vulnerabilities and things. So that's also going to be some third-party risk there. A- absolutely. And, and uh, audience, that's something... Uh, everyone listening should pay attention to third-party risk is not just some insurance term. It's literally what Nat's describing mm-hmm. it as. It's anybody that you don't have control over. And I'm really glad you defined it because that generalizes it. And that puts a lot of things in scope for the assessment of third-party risk. Mm-hmm. So when you're developing an app, just getting back to that, and we look at it from the lens of third-party risk, a there may be a lot of instances where you're using code that's already been built, right? You're using either open source code or you're using uh, a platform like Ruby on Rails, whatever it might be, uh, that might come inherently with some vulnerabilities that, that are not readily obvious. How do you architect for that so that you have better security in your application? So the one thing is to read, read the documentation, read the manual, understand what, um, what the code is supposed to be doing and how you can secure it. Nearly every framework um, these days is going to have a guide on security for their particular software, less so the, you know, just open source libraries. Um, but you mentioned, you know, Ruby on rails or, you know, .NET framework or something like that. 
They're all going to have security guides on best practices. Um, and then the next step is to architect your application so that it is easy to update those libraries and those frameworks as necessary. The biggest problem I see so many times is that the application gets essentially hard-coded into versions because the dependencies are so interlaced, they just can't update you know, even a simple library without updating you know, the entire application. And so they, you know, a, a vulnerability, for example, gets released on, you know, an open source project and the application developers sit there and go, well, it's going to take us six months to unwind all the dependencies here in order to update this um, successfully. Now, why is that still so pervasive, this, that approach? Why are people not architecting as you are suggesting from the get go? Well, I think it goes back to the trade-off of security and usability. You know, the developers want to get a product to their customers, to their users, and the faster and more efficient they're able to do that, um, the faster they're making money. And so shortcuts such as, you know, hard coding, I mean, that's where hard coding passwords comes in as well. It's not exactly what we were talking about there, but that's why it happens. It's because developers are taking a shortcut in order to, you know, ship the code that they need um, to for their product. And it, it takes management and executives to say, hold on, you know, we're going to do this right from the beginning. Um, it takes a whole, you know, strong security and development culture in that, um, that wants to do it right from the very you start. You know, we see this, um, you see this in hospitals with medical devices. You see this in mm -hmm. um, your, your the Internet of Things, right? Whether it's your refrigerator or your microwave or your alarm system. All these things have, there's been so many vulnerabilities exposed in all of these devices. And these are all from major, major manufacturers. Um, I won't incriminate the innocent, if you will, on the program, but <laughs> I think we know who you pick a company and, and we probably know who we're talking about here, pick a product. It's, it's that culture, right? And you mentioned executives. I think there's a gap in that executive knowledge base that needs to be filled, that they need to understand that you design for security. It's not, security is not an afterthought. Mm -hmm. And very much. And I think, it, as we mentioned with the third party, I think sometimes the executives think that, you know, the third party is handling all the security risk. And if they just follow those, you know, .NET, oh, so for example, they're using .NET, if they're just following the .NET security guys, then they're going to be fine. There, you know, no vulnerabilities are going to be introduced, even though they're building custom code on top of the framework. And in, they're, they're the ones introducing the issues, of course, in their own code. So, you know, that brings us to Google, Amazon, and Microsoft. <laughs> uh, th those are the big three gorillas uh, in the world out there. And I can't tell you the number of times we have heard, well, we're on Amazon, so they manage our security. Yeah. And that is a totally false thing or we use Microsoft 365 so Microsoft manages all that we don't we don't care we we don't need any mm -hmm. knowledge on it 
And the number of breaches that you see as a result where people have gotten into people's emails or they have been managed to, as a result, then send uh, messages to people that who voluntarily send checks in the mail uh, to the bad guys, all kinds of things have happened. So there's a difference of being in the cloud and being on the cloud. And I, I don't know that, uh, maybe you can shed some light on that. You know, what's, uh, that's a huge third party risk. It's a huge third party risk. Yeah. And of course, you know, Amazon, Google, and, and they've got tons of documentation that say, no, no, here is the line, right? Here are the things that we're taking care of. And here are the things that you're taking care of. And yet, again, because people weren't reading the documentation. It, I mean, when people first started moving to the cloud, it felt like every other day you heard about, you know, this database was on an S3 bucket, completely, you know, unauthenticated to the internet and anybody could access it. And it's been a while now that Amazon has had, you know, big red blaring, you know, sirens, like you can't even set those configurations anymore without going through four or five confirmation pop-ups from Amazon. And we still see those stories. So it is, it is just amazing. Um, sometimes the, the, the level of trust that people give the executives and teams give to these cloud environments, even though Amazon tries to make it as clear as possible that no, no, we will handle the infrastructure. If you're putting a web application on our in our cloud, you are still responsible for the security of that web application. And for if there is SQL injection, that is your code and that is your responsibility. Yeah, I and I hope uh, there's some executives that are listening out there because that that is something that is a real gap. And and maybe there is uh, Nat a, a fault on the security engineering side here too. I mean, it seems like there are a lot of uh, people in the cybersecurity business either are are not communicating as well to the management teams or as forcefully as they should be. Mm -hmm. I, I would push back a little on okay. forcefully. Um, I've seen, cause I've seen plenty of security engineers talk very forcefully. And sometimes that's actually really? the problem because they end up, they end up sounding <laughs> crazy. <laughs> well, because of course, you know, as a security expert, what we're, we're concerned about the risk, right? And we say, well, even, a, even an S3 bucket, exposed to the internet, it's not a problem until somebody actually accesses right. it and that data is lost. So as the security engineer, you're coming in and saying, no, we can't do this. We're going to lose our data. And the executive will respond with, have we lost our data? So, oh, well, no, not yet. Will we lose our data? Yes, probably, probably. <laughs> and so it becomes this, you know, risk analysis that the executive is trying to do. And of course, the executive and so I, yes, so I would say the communication is the key and it's not just being forceful, but it's actually communicating the security in the business risk terms that the executive speaks. That is spot on that. <laughs> that you're exactly <laughs> right. Uh, you know, to me, it's the, the yes, no risk analysis. I, and what you just described is I've seen it play out a hundred times where the executive will ask, just answer simple yes or no questions. Are we secure on Amazon or not? And yes or no will do. It's not, uh, right. yes, but, 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> and there is a that knowledge gap is there. How do we solve that? How 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 does the professional get this resolved? I know there's frameworks out there like FAIR that will that are very expensive and complex to implement. When you implement them, it gives you a great analysis of the probability of a breach like and the magnitude of loss. And, and that's something that mm -hmm. an executive management team or a board can understand. But is there some other approaches that you think might work in helping that security professional be a little more crisp, maybe, the message? Yeah, so the short answer is there is no easy solution. Um, it does just come down to better communication. Right. The executive is thinking in terms of uh, profit and risk to that profit. Um, so we, the first thing is, yes, if you are if, as a security professional, if we're coming in and saying we will probably get hacked, then we need to put that in terms of business risk. Um, you know, what does that mean to get hacked? What is the financial implications of that? And what does it mean for the business? Um, I have tried to start actually turning it around as well, though, um, in discussing with developers and some of my clients, that is also security shouldn't just be a avoiding risk, but it can also actually be a positive feature of your yes. application. And this has been a wonderful thing because it actually, in the past few years now, there's been enough kind of consumer polling and data to show that, yeah, users themselves are starting to migrate to products that advertise that they are secure. The products that say we are not going to use your data, uh, your personal data for marketing, and you know we're going to keep your your data private. Um, companies that say we are performing these types of security tests and security audits to make sure we have a secure platform. Uh, customers are actually being attracted to that kind of marketing and that kind of talk. So you can use as a company, you it, just like any other feature or functionality, instead of just saying, you know, we have the best, you know, chat instant messenger application, you can also say we have the most secure chat and instant messaging application, and that will attract business by itself See, as well. And that's a really great concept, using cybersecurity to actually increase the revenue stream of the company. Right. Exactly. Uh, I don't... To date, I don't know that there's been a lot of talk on it, but it's it's a it's a very good observation, uh, and that then try, directly ties back to the pen testing that we were talking about earlier. If you're getting budgetary constraints, mm -hmm. you'd say, "Well, we get hacked, and we lose the brand recognition, and people are not buying as much. What does that cost us versus spending an extra five thousand dollars on doing another aspect of?" Exactly. Exactly. And the same thing, I mean, I, I'm a penetration tester, so I'm aware enough to go to security pages on products that I'm looking at and to look, are they performing penetration testing? I don't think, I don't think the average consumer is really doing that particular, looking for that right. particular line item, but um, more and more products are having those security pages and it, and it hurts me when they have the security page but don't list, yes, we are doing security testing. I have to follow up. And they say, oh, yes, of course. You know, we're doing this twice a year. I said, well, put it on your website. Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you advertise that? 
Well, I mean, in their mind, you're a security professional, right? So people, you're going to go out of your way to read those right. things. I, I don't know how many consumers go about that, right? That's uh, that that's the fundamental issue, and maybe that's why the marketing or the marketing departments don't understand it. It could be a combination of a whole bunch of things there that that result in that. Which of course brings back which to that translates back piece, to the yeah. communication. Yet we come back to that same <laughs> same story. Don't do the yes no risk analysis on the fly. That's not going to lead to a good decision, uh, <laughs> uh, especially in regards to your application security and things you should be doing. I think you might remember Nat. There was several years ago um, we were talking about S three buckets. There was uh, an open database the U.S. federal government had that was storing all the uh, security clearance form data on U.S. personnel. And that entire database was not secured. It was open. And uh, it that data all got hacked. It got all taken away. Yeah. I, I'm sure I saw that. I don't remember it specifically. I think in that, especially that beginning of the cloud, there were just so many of those stories. It, I think it's still pervasive. I, I it would be if we went on a little survey, if someone would allow us to do it, that said, let's just see how many default passwords have even been changed in these databases. We might be surprised yeah. at the outcome of, of that. So, you know, one of the things, you know, SANS put out this uh, top five things uh, that are going to be big issues in 2022. Uh, one of the items they mentioned was mm -hmm. MFA, and I think you had put it up on a blog post or you had put it up on your LinkedIn uh, post. Do you know uh, what the issues are with MFA or can you shed some light on it as to what vulnerability they're really talking about there? Sure. So I do always preface discussions of security issues on MFA with using MFA is still always better than not using MFA. No matter how many security vulnerabilities we discuss on it, it's still use MFA because it's better than the alternative. But then yes, um, MFA does still need to be configured correctly um, or it's not adding that much value. Um, so as more and more applications, of course, and users start using MFA, it's only natural that of course hackers target MFA more specifically um, because they need to in order to get access to those same accounts. Sometimes it's essential, sometimes it's not even so much a technical vulnerability as it is just social engineering, right? I've seen a number of articles, somebody gets a text, you know, and it's supposed to be from their friend who says, oh, hey, I'm gonna be sending you a code. I need to help, I need help getting access to my account. And that's just social engineering. Actually, the MFA is working exactly as it's intended to be, but people want to be helpful, especially with who they think is their friend. So, um, but then that being said as well, sometimes, yeah, sometimes the MFA is configured incorrectly, either because you can brute force the code or you can bypass it completely. Or I've even seen, you know, skipping the username and password and just going for the MFA by itself because the two aren't connected as they're supposed to be in the application code. Whereas, you know, first it's a username and password, then it's an MFA and not the other way around or in either or situation. So again, as we said earlier, it's all about reading the documentation and making sure if you're 
configuring an MFA solution that you are doing it um, according to best practices. Yeah, and uh, there are a ton of best practices out there uh, that one needs to look at when when they're configuring MFA. You're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, the flip is also you need to, we get back to third-party risk, is that you have to look at the applications that you mm -hmm. want to integrate with MFA and make sure that they actually have the capacity to do that. Uh, there's still a lot of applications out there that don't accept MFA. There are still, yeah, absolutely. And sometimes your MFA solution actually, you, yeah, actually now that you mentioned it, um, some people don't necessarily still have a uh, right. smartphone. And then, so you're either telling, and if you have an MFA solution that keeps those people out of your application, um, then those are clients you're essentially your, or customers you're turning away. So many, many MFA solutions will have um, parameters to allow for essentially a less secure option um, that hackers can exploit as well. And that's just a that one of those trade-offs as a business. That you yeah, you see that decision. a lot on major insurance sites where you can switch to uh, asking questions, right? You know, what high school did you go to? Or... Mm -hmm. Or <laughs> what was the color of your first car or some, some I don't know what, there's a whole slew of things that they ask. Yeah. But that's all, a lot of that data can be gathered from your Facebook page, from your, you have revealed it in multiple databases somewhere. A hundred percent. And yeah. that can be used to affect a, a, an MFA password reset, which, you know, you, you mentioned mobile devices. That's a, ginormous attack service and i think that was also on sans top five list of things for 2022 yes. but what do we do about them because they're ubiquitous i mean all of us use our phones and i think a lot of especially when you look at newer companies that are coming up employees do have company data on those devices and they are using it to yep. do productive work Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, so I think the cloud does help a little bit with that because, you know, you can let users be productive or employees be productive on their phones, just connecting to, let's call it secure cloud uh, environments. Although, yes, we just talked about how it can definitely be insecure. But, you know, if you're accessing your email or, you know, Google Docs, um, your online, you know, PowerPoints or whatever, you know, you can, you can be, do a lot of work on those, on those phones without allowing them to access the internal network, say, for example, right? If somebody's bringing their phone to the office, you could segment those phones so that, yeah, you can use the Wi-Fi to connect to the internet, but the phone's not getting onto the internal network and accessing our internal servers or databases or something like that. Um, it's a segmentation option that, you know, can mitigate some of that risk. Um, I've also, of course, seen uh, you know solutions that you know um, companies will. If you have a work phone, um, they'll install the various solution, the management solution on the phones, on the work phones, and that's a way for them to keep track of what apps are on there, keep track of what they're doing, and those sorts of things. But again, we talked about third-party risk, and that's a pretty big one. Um, that's you know, definitely a solution that hackers are going to go after, and. Um, is not exactly the same, but um, you yeah. know, you think about solar winds from a few years back. Uh, you know, that's 
act, um, attacking a solution like that, that is trusted to apply your security or to apply your monitoring uh, to help you in those ways, um, you know, getting access to that and make, making it a you know big backdoor malware. Oh, it was uh, engineered huge. very well, right? I mean, they, I, it, 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 <laughs> whoever engineered that really knew what they were doing. I mean, they, they actually injected malware into uh, a trusted update, right? And so you got a signed certificate saying this is a trusted update. I, I don't care what level yeah. of security you have. And I guess that's the tip of the pyramid of pain. That's the unknown unknown, right? And and those will always, yeah. always be there. But just switching back to phones real quick, you know, you mentioned like putting a management solution on the phone. Have you seen in companies that do that any kind of pushback? Because a lot of these devices are personal devices and you put MDM on them the company can wipe that device, which results in the wiping of a lot of personal data potentially. Yes. So definitely anytime um, security tries to um, do more monitoring, do more controlling of the employees and what they're able to access, you're going to have pushback. Um, and I think that that also comes back to that communication piece. Um, does security present themselves essentially as the bad cops of the organization telling everyone, no, you can't do this. No, you won't do that. Or do they set the, the, themselves up as the security experts that are actually trying to enable employees to do their jobs better? Um, as an example, you talk about the, you know, the, the, we're talking about the phones. You can say, look, this mobile solution now you can take this phone and you can download whatever app you want without work, without checking with security because the solution will tell you if it's a problem. And if it is, come talk to us. We'll work it out. If it is a problem, we'll try to find an alternative app for you. And if it's not a problem, we'll whitelist it. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes the solution gets a little bit too excited. Um, and so they'll whitelist the app and you, and you can go ahead. But it, it makes that, it takes that kind of stress of, and the burden of I need to constantly be on top of my security away from the employee and says, don't worry about it. We've got that side of it. You go out and do your job. You know, And like we said with communication, sometimes it's just, it's a framing thing. See, uh, I wonder I, to date, how many companies where cybersecurity professionals, I, they, a lot of times they think this is people in some back room with a hoodie somewhere. They don't really see them. I hate to put stereotypes <laughs> out there, but it, it's there. And mm -hmm. that what you just described as a dialogue between a cybersecurity team and an end user, it's rare that you see that kind of dialogue happen out there. It's very rare and it's very unfortunate because I've seen lots of blogs and articles about when people don't have that human friend connection with security when they feel like security is just that, you know, bad cop watching over them, then they'll do everything they can to bypass the security that's in place to protect them and the company. Instead, turn it around, be friends, right? Give that human face to security. It's like, it, 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 I, this is, this is, this is a bit controversial, but I see too many times, I think there's just a security inbox, right? If you have a security question, 
email this distribution, somebody will get back to you. I, I say, no, 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 get rid of all of that. Have a security go-to person, right? For I, yeah. when I worked as a product security engineer, I was the security go-to person with the development team. I spent half my time with the development team. I sat with the developers. They knew if they had a question about security, they could message me, they could email me, they could just come walk right over and talk to me. And I think that's, we, you should, we should have the same thing for marketing, for human resources, for legal. Everybody should have a go-to, and it, it might just be the security manager for everyone. I, if it's a small team, yeah. that just might be what it is. But you, know, you should be able to say, I know so-and-so from security. If I'm having a security concern, I know that they will be receptive. You know, to I, I think that uh, right there is advice that's worth the price of admission for this one episode, because you might have just solved <laughs> the shadow IT problem in, in a big way. Because that's mm -hmm. how shadow IT happens, right? Exactly. They, yeah. Go ahead. And that we could spend another another couple of hours on shadow oh, IT by itself. Yeah, a, that that is a whole topic, but it stems from that lack of human to human contact. If 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 there was a notion right. that these guys are actually there to help enable me and not disable me, everything is always a no. Yeah. Whatever whatever you go ask them, no, <laughs> no, no. Well, then you no, know what's yeah. going to happen? The Wild West. People are going to eventually say, you know what? I got to do my job. I don't really care. You know, you figure this out. Exactly. And, and that's now you end up with a slew of an expanding attack surface is what you end up with. <laughs> so let, let me yeah. ask a really dumb question and forgive me for it. But this, this, is, a, this is probably a, one of the dumber ones you're going to get today. And that is, can you actually do a penetration test on mobile devices. Can you pen test them? Really? Absolutely. How would you do that? Yep. Like how would, I, I'm, I'm just curious as a personal curiosity here. Cause they're not on the network, right? I mean, they're, they're floating around in Starbucks or where they're at the airport, they're wherever they are. So you would need to be on the same network as it, or you would have to get some kind of app or malware, pen testing malware okay. um, onto the phone. Um, but yes, yes, you would, you would have to have them on the same network, which is not terribly difficult to do. I mean, generally those, the phones will connect to whatever Wi-Fi automatically yes. that they can, um, you know, to save on data usage and everything like that. So certainly if you're, if you're in a, uh, an office setting, um, everyone's using the office Wi-Fi. Um, the the phone is just another. It's just a smaller workstation. From all the penetration testing that you've done, is there like a top two or three things that you have seen be consistent failure points with the SOC teams? Yes, with the SOC teams. Um, yes. Let's see, I would say number one is just gaps in coverage. Um, if I'm doing, um, I, I, I usually use the example for SQL injection. It's, it's not as prevalent as it used to be, but it's still something that everyone understands and, uh, and recognizes for the most part. Um, but if, if I'm doing SQL injection, it's common enough that the SOC doesn't realize it's there or what I'm doing, right? They might just see, hey, this guy's hitting 
you know, he's, he's sending a lot of requests. That's a little weird. Um, but otherwise they don't realize that, uh, that I'm act actively exploiting. So I, so yes, I would say gaps in coverage. And then the number two would be, um, alert fatigue, right? If I'm, for example, they'll get, they'll get an alert for every single request that I send that's trying SQL injection. It all just gets collected into either huge lists or, you know, something that, you know, a low, low issue that, yeah, they'll follow up, you know, in a little bit. And it, um, and then, you know, a day later, I've already got the data by the time that they're actually looking at it. Well, SOC team people, please take a look at that. Um, that, that's, that's interesting. I could see the alert fatigue. That is an obvious one. I mean, being an mm -hmm. analyst in a SOC is a thankless job. That's a, it's a difficult role to look at a glass mm -hmm. screen and, and give it the constant attention that it needs all the time. It does. And it, I mean, again, those tools, you know, sometimes you really have to configure them the right way in order to make sure that, you know, a high alert is a high alert. If you're getting high alerts every day, it's probably. Yeah. And that gets, that gets to a whole nother set of topics, right? I mean, yeah, as to, <laughs> you know, how you are writing rules, how are you tuning your uh, SIM and how you're integrating that into SOAR. I mean, that can lead to a whole nother set of conversations. Uh, that we could discuss. But Nat, we are coming up on the hour here. I also wanted to take some time and give you an opportunity to speak about things uh, that you're getting involved with. Uh, you know, whether you have some books coming out or you have, uh, you're doing some talks out there or papers or get, is there anything you would like to uh, go ahead and plug? Well, sure. So I, I'm still working on my book. That's that's probably 10, 20 years down the road here. But uh, in uh, in July, I am very excited. I'm uh, speaking at Nebraska Code. Um, it's a developer conference, and I'm giving a couple of talks focusing on security. Um, and uh, so very excited, very excited about that. Um, and actually, both of those talks are are taken from a um, a resource um, on our blog, actually about um, exactly that framing discussion that we talked about framing security, not just as a, I'm avoiding risk, but actually as something worth bragging about. Um, and so that's also on our Fantastic. website. Fantastic. Uh, if you want to give us the links, we'll, we'll put them in, you know, for the audience, uh, and they can, uh, go Absolutely. back and check it out. And if they're going to the talk, uh, make sure that they hit you up with questions and, and come out and see you. Sounds like, uh, that, that you, you might be one of the first people to talk about that in a public forum. Cybersecurity as a revenue source versus being a cost center. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm working. I'm working on making it a thing. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely worth it. Now I just need some uh, some uh, guinea pigs and some data to, well, to, to back fantastic. it up. Fantastic! If uh, there's anything, any way in which we can help out, uh, let us know. We'll uh, we'll try. And um, really, it's been great having you here. Thank you for all your insights. And, uh, you know, come back sometime, say hello. And, and, uh, you know, as things develop, Absolutely. Uh, it'd be great to have your, uh, have you educate our audience a little bit further on these topics. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Matt. Thanks so much for having me.